Good morning. Welcome to Moderna's third annual R&D meeting. Thank you for joining us in person in the room and for those of you joining us by webcast. Thanks for joining in. We're very pleased to host you today uh, and to share some interesting new data about Moderna's platform that are important for patients. Before we start, uh, let me remind you we'll be making forward-looking statements. I'm making Marne is a whiskey endeavor and I invite you to check our results on the SEC website or on the Moderna website. <clears throat> As many of you know, since we started the company, we thought that mRNA could be a very powerful new potential class of medicines. What excited us is the possibility of doing not only secreted proteins, but also intracellular and transmembrane. And when you think that the quality of a protein encoded in the human genome are coding for transmembrane and intracellular protein, that could be a very large opportunity to help patients. We believe because mRNA is an information molecule that will have a true platform, the ability to learn from one product into the next product, which is very unique in our industry. We believe that if we invested in technology, in robotics, in IT, in manufacturing capabilities, we'll be able to go much faster into the clinic by speeding up the research process in the lab, but also going faster into the clinic because we don't have every time to reinvent how to make mRNA. And we thought that over time, there'll be a very interesting capex advantage with mRNA because mRNA manufacturing is very efficient. We do not need cells to make the mRNA with very large reactors, like the entire biotech industry. We make our mRNA in small reactors in the liquid phase reaction. But it's also very important to know about how we build the company is the fact that it made no scientific sense to any of us that this could be a one-drug company. Because of the information nature of mRNA, it was very clear that either we were not going to be successful and we could not launch an mRNA drug, or there would be many. Because of this opportunity to help patients and to change the world, we spend a lot of time thinking about risk management. The obvious financing risk, execution risk, which are true to any company, but for Moderna, we spend a lot of time thinking, and still do to this day, thinking about technology risk, or mRNA technology, and biology risk. And so the way we build our company is to build it across modalities. Think about modalities as different applications of mRNA technology, where we use different water administration and our delivery systems. That's what is really unique about how we're building this company. And to manage biology risk and to tear apart technology risk and biology risk, we try when we can to start in a new application, in a new modality, with a program that has low biology risk. And why is that? It is because if you run a clinical trial for a new technology that has never been tried by man and you have a failure, you cannot tear apart. Did that drug fail in a clinic because the technology didn't work? or because the hypothesis around the biology was incorrect. And because we care so deeply about learning, we're trying to keep those things apart as we start. 
So if you think about it, when we started, we started with vaccines because we thought vaccine was less risky from a technology standpoint than what Sal is going to show you later, injecting IV, uh, and we're going to do a rare disease for potentially a lifetime, a drug to a kid. Uh, so we started with vaccines. And when we started with vaccines, we didn't start with CMV because that would have been a very high risk. We started with flu. Why? Because there's an FDA approval endpoint for flu. It is used for seasonal flu every year. And so by having this benchmark, we could know after the first phase one, are we home from a technology performance standpoint, or do we need to go back to the labs to improve our technology because we're not there yet? We're very, very happy because the great science our team did, that our first phase one that was run in Germany, was successful. 100% of the subjects uh, at the 100 microgram dose showed more than 40 to 1 uh, zero conversion. That was a great milestone for us that enabled us from there to go into things like CMV and personalized cancer vaccine. The other thing it enabled us to do is to invest in Norwood. We'll come back to it later with one. Norwood is a very important part of Moderna's story and the business model we've set up around this very unique technology. So today, as some of you I'm sure have seen the press release, we're extremely pleased and proud to announce two very important new clinical milestones. The first one is, of course, around the CMV vaccine. We will talk a lot about CMV this morning, but we are very pleased to announce positive interim phase one for the vaccine, that we successfully immunized seronegative above the seropositive level. We boosted the seropositive uh, subject in the study. The vaccines are generally well tolerated. We will share with you the details of why we think we can, in the near term, start a phase two and are already preparing for phase three and we're already at discussions with EFDA. I want to remind you that Moderna owns 100% of the rights of this vaccine and we think it will be a very important product for the company. The second news that we shared this morning is a positive phase one data for our chikungunya antibody, which is the first time in the world that an mRNA has been injected by IV route to make a systemic protein. That is a big scientific milestone, and if you think about it, we made humans produce antibodies in their liver. So when you think about that, this is just a scientific piece by itself. Uh, usually B cells make antibodies. Uh, I think my liver has never made uh, antibodies so far. Uh, and that's really something really remarkable that speaks loudly about the possibilities over time of what we can do with this technology. The important thing about the antibody program as well, which was a big question in our mind, is how well will it translate from non-human primates? And as I will show you, it translates pretty well. Before moving on, uh, I would like to pause for a minute and to just acknowledge the scientific accomplishments of the Moderna team. CMV contains six mRNA in one volume. Six mRNA molecules in each volume. This is borderline science fiction, but the team made it happen. The chikungunya antibody is two mRNA in a vial that has to get into the same, same cells, make both proteins correctly, they then have to self-assemble into an antibody, and then to get secreted into the blood. If you just count how many if I said in my sentence, a lot of things have to happen right in tiny little cells and in the body, so you can see the results we're going to show you today. This is just remarkable. 
And there's really one thing that I think really differentiates Moderna is the commitment we have to doing amazing science. And I would like to take a moment to really acknowledge uh, not only the dozens and dozens of people that work in our labs, but the leadership of the, the science community at Moderna. Stephen, of course, Melissa, Kerry, Ern, JJ, Joe, Eric, Josh, Paolo, Andrea, and in one's organization in technical development, because it's one thing when Stephen and the gang invent those new technologies. Then you have to be able to make it with high purity at clinical grade to go on a clinical experiment. And trust me, this is not easy. So Juan, Ari, Phil, Don, Hugh, Peter, uh, also uh, Nedim, Scott, and also Jim. Uh, thank you so much for the remarkable. You guys keep amazing me, and uh, I think we're not done here. So, what have we learned in the last few years about Moderna's mRNA platform? Well, first we learned that we have invested a lot in science. We tried to publish a lot of scientific papers to share with the world that science. We built Norwood. Norwood is up and running, as one will give you a bit of an update. But if you think about it, in the last three and a half years, the team has put 16 different molecules in clinical trials. 16. Remember, four years ago, in September 2015, we had not been in the clinic yet. I think we had one or two programming talks. That was it. That was Moderna. And that speaks loudly of the team, the platform, and the investments we have made when it was early, and everybody thought this was too cute of an idea. The team has thus so far 1,300 humans around the world, healthy subjects and patients. So this is not a body of two or three patients or subjects uh, in one study. It's really a very big uh, body of data. We have also already many times over repeated injections in the personalized cancer vaccine, in Oxford, the patients have gotten many, many doses of our mRNA. Not one dose, many, many doses over time. What I'm very excited about is that now, if you think about it, with the chic map data this morning, for the first five modalities of Moderna, we have consistently shown that first, our mRNA is well tolerated in humans across the board. We have shown that the protein we encoded uh, is active which was not obvious. The only case where it was not happened is the Zika vaccine, the first Zika vaccine, and I will tell you a little bit about why. Uh, and the other thing that is really profound is the translation from preclinical species, as you will see today again with uh, chicken antibody. So we are very, very pleased of the progress of the company, and now it's five out of five that we tried in the clinic that have positive results. So yes, there's still a lot of work ahead of us, but we are very, very pleased with the progress we have made as a company and what it could mean for patients over the mid to long term. Last December, we IPO the company, and this was the state of the pipeline of the company. One product in phase two, a few in phase one, and a lot in uh, open IND or GLP talks setting. If you look at just what happened in the last nine months, we now have two products in phase two, Two programs that are preparing for phase two, CMV and Doc 44 ovarian. There's a long stack of products in phase one. The IND for MMA is open and we are working hard to recruit our first patients. And we have GSD1A as our latest product that we moved from the labs into development. Uh, 
is just in the last nine months. A lot of progress, and as we've shared many times on our quarterly calls, the company number one priority is to move those products as fast as we can to the market. That is really the, part, the priority number one of the team. So where are we as of September 2019? So four products in phase two are prepared for phase two, 12 phase one, and now we have a very strong body of data, 10 positive phase one studies, six vaccines. Personalized cancer vaccine, as we shared at our score, VEGF, that AZ published in one of the nature journals, and chikungunya antibody. We have four vaccines for large unmet medical needs for which there is no vaccine on the market. Think about the impact we can have to have so many people around the world as we get those products moving forward. CMV, HMPVPIV, RSV, and Zika. For a small biotech company that had no product in the clinic four years ago, we now have five immuno-oncology programs in the clinic. We have one in phase two and one in phase two very soon. And we are partnering, as you know, with Merck and AZ, who are some of the leaders in the IO field. And we have five important rare diseases that the chikungunya antibody technology uh, human data we're going to share with you today is a very important de-risking. We talked about it, 1,300 humans have been dosed. The team is strong between Norwood and Cambridge, more than 800 uh, members of the team. Norwood is a key asset for Moderna and a strong balance sheet of $1.44 billion as of the end of June. So with this framing, uh, I'm going to invite Sal in a minute. Let me share with you what we propose for the agenda this morning. As you can imagine, we're going to spend a bunch of time on CMV. We have several guests that I will introduce in a minute. to talk about CMV, talk about the virus, the medical needs, and we're, of course, going to share with you the human data we announced this morning. Uh, and I'll do something that I've not done yet in modern history. I'll come back on stage to talk about commercials and how we're thinking about launching this product, uh, which is uh, quite different from talking about mice only, which was where we were a few years ago with Stephen, uh, when we did our first collaboration. Then we'll do a Q&A just on CMV because we think there's a lot of things to talk about. We'll take a small break. We'll come back to talk about immuno-oncology. And then Tal, for uh, the main dish of the day, we'll share with you the chick antibody data. We'll talk about MMA. And then uh, I'll do a brief conclusion. And we'll, we'll do a Q&A for the second part of the presentation. So with this, Tal, it's all yours. Thank you, Stefan. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Truly an honor and pleasure to be here this morning uh, to start the agenda. We will start this morning talking about vaccines. Uh, we'll do a deep dive on uh, CMV, cytomegalovirus. And I promise you, if there's nothing else you take from this morning, you will understand CMV. Uh, we're fortunate to be joined here by three of the world's leading experts on CMV, Dr. Permar, Dr. Schleiser, and Dr. Uh, Riley. Um, and I've asked them to come and uh, give you a sense of context for the disease, the unmet need, uh, and, and throughout we'll, we'll weave in the actual data that we have. So I'm going to start just by a brief overview on our uh, prophylactic infectious disease pipeline. This pipeline really, we think of it as divided in two big buckets. One is the opportunity to go after real unmet needs as they exist today, things like cytomegalovirus where people are getting uh, infected every day and there's no vaccine out there on the market. And there are clear significant unmet needs, and you can see in our portfolio uh, different vaccines going after them. And the other bucket is those uh, 
There's going to be a disc there. <laughs> the other bucket is those uh, diseases which are pandemic threats, and so of obvious concern uh, for global uh, preparedness. We think our platform can actually do good in that domain. That's obviously dependent on public-private partnerships, and we've been fortunate today to have the strong support of both DARPA and BARDA uh, on these endeavors. So why would you use an mRNA technology for vaccines? There's, there's a number of answers, but let me give you sort of the top ones that, that as, I, as I joined the company almost five years ago, were sort of self-evident in potential. And the first is that MR, uh, our, our platform is essentially an mRNA and a lipid nanoparticle. On first principles, you've got a nucleic acid within a lipid. Kind of looks like a virus. So it's not a, a far technological leap to say, well, if we injected IM and we get some protein made, we could teach immune system to then amplify that signal just like a vaccine does. And in fact, because we're making the protein from within the cell, we're mimicking the way a natural infection would make proteins. And that's important because it not only activates the immune system, it ensures that you activate both the antibody arm and the T-cell arm. And you'll see examples from our platform that actually prove the point now in the clinic of the ability of this platform to both generate antibodies and T-cells. We can do a combination product. We can put more than one mRNA in a vaccine. We started with HMPV and PAV3, two viruses that cause very similar respiratory illness, and we said, well, it makes sense that you would put the vaccine against both together because you're trying to immunize two causes of the same disease. And then we took it a step further, further with CMV. And as Stefan said, we've got six mRNAs here in one vial, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. We've got, because of the... I think the, the foundation nature of synthetic biology and how we make mRNA, and frankly, I think because of our lean forward culture from the get-go, we have a faster discovery time than anything I've ever seen in pharmaceutical industry. In fact, I joke with Stephen that he needs one-fifth the number of people that anybody else needs because every one of his people is five times as effective just because it takes them five times shorter to do discovery. That has translated for us the ability to actually go from an idea on a whiteboard to filing an IND in 12 to 18 months, routinely. Trust me, I can't hire the people fast enough in development to catch up with, with the opportunities we have there. And that has been truly uh, remarkable. And finally, the fact that you've got a single process and, and, a, and, and a similar way of doing all these diverse applications means that from a manufacturing standpoint, you have an agility and efficiency that is truly remarkable. And uh, if, if any of you have visited Norwood or you haven't, uh, you know, on behalf of Juan, I invite you to. And, and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm a clinician. I'm a drug developer. You don't see people like me get excited about manufacturing almost ever. Come to Norwood. Uh, it is something different. And, and, if you, and if you understand what that means in terms of the ability then to launch and commercialize products and have the agility in the manufacturing space, not have that capital hurdle of needing to build a new plant every time you launch a new drug, uh, I think that's a tremendous efficiency that's still ahead of us. So with that, how have we done in the vaccine? This, this gives you an overview of where we are today. We started, as Stefan said, with, with those that are relatively simple, two cases of, of influenza vaccines where we understand the antigen, we know how, how, how high we need to hit it in terms of immunogenicity, and we've done that. We've now published that paper, uh, both H10 and H7. We then took on additional uh, higher unmet needs. We went after RSV with Merck, uh, and that's worked. We may even have a better one. We 
in 2016, in collaboration with BARDA and the big public health emergency that we all felt at the time, we went after Zika, and we did that with really uh, not even putting the 12 months into discovery. We basically took the last sequence the CDC had described and put it into vaccine and ran with it in the clinic. And where we came up short was the level of immunogenicity at the dose that we tested wasn't quite strong enough. But at the same time as we were doing that, we put in the right 12 to 18 months preclinically and figured out, no, no, there's actually a much better way of doing that, that preclinically is at least 20 times as potent. Not only we think so, BARDA agrees with us. We've retained that collaboration. we pushed that back up forward. And, in fact, within a relatively short time, we're back in the clinic in a phase one with an improved version. Anybody who's ever done drug discovery knows that it's very rare to be able to rescue a drug a year, 18 months later, because you just changed the sequence and you figured out what was wrong with it. And I can't wait to see the results of that phase one. Uh, we, we, we went after more complicated antigens now, both uh, chikungunya and Zika are examples of viral-like proteins, so you need to make a much more complex protein that's got to be secreted, uh, and that's the antigen. We've proven we can do this with chikungunya as a vaccine. We've, we've uh, disclosed those data. Further development there, again, uh, depends on, a, on some sort of a public partnership. And finally, the, the two greatest unmet needs for vaccines that are wholly owned products for us are uh, respiratory viruses, HMPV and PAV3. That worked in phase one. We've discovered, we've uh, uh, disclosed the data earlier this year, and CMV, which we're here to talk about this morning. These are more complicated uh, applications, and you see the vaccine continues to perform as expected. In fact, if you step back and ask yourself, well, what have you learned about the safety profile of the platform? We've now dosed well over a 1,000 subjects across all these clinical trials in phase one vaccines, and the adverse event profile that we've seen is exactly what you would have anticipated from any active vaccine, whether it's a live attenuated recombinant subunit, adjuvanted, et cetera, et cetera. You see the anticipated local reactogenicity. You see some systemic flu-like symptoms, and that's it. There's nothing magic about this being a platform. As soon as you get into the cells, you're making protein. The rest depends on the pharmacology of those proteins. And so those three fundamental questions, you'll hear me revert to them again. Can we do it safely? Do we make proteins the protein active? For our vaccine modality, starting with flu, we've now shown time and again that indeed that is the case. So uh, without further ado, let's talk about CNV this morning. I'd like to invite uh, Dr. Permar, uh, one of the world's experts on this, to uh, set the stage for us in terms of what we're looking for here. that I think is the most important of our time to solve, um, and that's um, to prevent CMV, and especially the congenital transmission of CMV. I'm an infectious disease um, pediatrician, and um, when I was in clinical training um, is when I really came upon this. Am I, am I on? Yeah, you Okay. Am I on now? Am I on now? Stop it. Sorry. It's okay now? No. Nope, you're still on. Uh... You guys still have me on.
HIV patients before we had good HIV therapy had major problems with CMB disease. And then um, if you are a fetus, so if you become infected with the virus as a fetus, then you are apt to have um, lifelong um, brain damage from that infection. So the congenital CMB disease burden is um, one of the major causes of long-term disability in children. Um, it is extremely common. So it happens in one out of every 150 live births. That's just, just under 1% of all babies born. And this is globally, not just in the U.S. Um, it is the most common form of um, infectious causes of birth defects. Um, when infected, when this, um, uh, about 0.7% of babies are infected, 20% of them will go on to have lifelong disabilities because of the infection, the most common being hearing loss. Um, but there can be um, other major effects, including um, neurodevelopmental delay, um, motor delays. Uh, there are children who can't walk, can't talk, um, have seizures, um, and just general learning, learning disabilities. 
And so, again, this is a um, virus that is contributing to the ongoing um, issues of uh, neurodevelopmental delays in children, problems with learning, and it happens more in populations of poverty than it does in, um, in populations um, that are higher socioeconomic status. So, it, 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 to me, it's, it's really continuing some of the disparities that we're seeing um, in um, our economy and our society. Um, what a remarkable stat to me is that it is the cause of 25% of all of infant hearing loss. And so this is not a rare genetic disease that is only contributing a small proportion to infant hearing loss. This is a quarter of all infant hearing loss. So with one vaccine, you could make that many babies hear again. And the annual U.S. burden is estimated at $4 billion. And that would include things like um, cochlear implants, all of the um, social care that children who are um, have neurodevelopmental delays that have them dependent on long-term care, um, as well as learning disabilities that we uh, work through in schools. These are some of the costs are in that four billion, and some are, are um, hard to measure. And if you look over here at the um, causes of pediatric long-term disabilities, CMD really rates at the top. This is the list for the U.S. Um, it comes above fetal alcohol syndrome. It comes above things that you've heard more about, Down syndrome, spina, bif uh, spina bifida. Um, and then come the things that we've done well at preventing, like um, preventing pediatric HIV. When moms take the antiretrovirals, we can prevent that. Um, Haemophilus influenzae, which is one of the major causes of um, bacterial meningitis that did lead to a lot of hearing loss before we had a vaccine and congenital rubella syndrome, which we have a very successful vaccine that has eliminated that congenital infection in every country where that uh, vaccine is used. So hopefully I've convinced you that we need um, a vaccine for CMD. Um, but we um, need a vaccine that can, can provide protective immune responses prior to pregnancy um, in order to eliminate this infection. So this would be sort of targeted at the adolescent um, time frame. This has been a top priority for over 20 years, named by the National Academy of Medicine, um, yet we, we are still without even a lot of uh, products that have been to late-phase trials. Um, it really can build on the success of the rubella vaccine as an example. Um, and this is a graph of what happened to uh, rubella infections um, at the time that the rubella vaccine was introduced. And rubella vaccine was not developed to prevent the infection, which is a mild self-limited infection in children, it was really developed to eliminate the congenital infections, which caused heart defects, hearing loss, um, vision loss. And um, so the red line is the number of rubella cases in the U.S. after um, implementation of this very successful vaccine. The blue line is the congenital rubella cases um, that, that went down in a, um, in a related fashion. Um, and so I um, am lucky to get to work with one of the developers of the measles vaccine. The measles vaccine was um, soon followed on uh, by the rubella vaccine uh, being related viruses, uh, Dr. Sam Katz. And he said something to me that I always remember, and it's kind of my mantra for what we can achieve with a CMV vaccine, is that when the rubella vaccine was implemented and so successful, that the need for the schools of the deaf and blind decreased so much that those schools had to close because there weren't enough children to fill them anymore. And that's what we can achieve with a CMV vaccine. So, uh, but the CMB immunology, unfortunately, is not quite as simple as rubella. Otherwise, we would have that vaccine already. Um, so, unlike rubella, the um, CMB immunity is not 
completely protective. It's not protective against acquisition of um, a new virus, um, a new strain of CMV, and it's also not completely protective against the congenital transmission, and that makes vaccine development complicated. Um, and what has really been complicated to the field and um, to and, and really uh, was first identified about um, 20 years ago that uh, mothers with prior immunity to CMV could still pass the virus on to the baby, and the majority of adults have um, and, and women of childbearing age have CMV. So that means actually the majority of the transmission is happening in that seropositive population throughout the world. And this is just a comparison of the cases of CMV. Um, if you had a thousand pregnant women who were seronegative, meaning they'd never been infected with the virus, or a thousand pregnant women who had been infected with the virus um, prior to pregnancy, so were seropositive. Um, the rate of acquisition in um, a woman who's seronegative that um, comes into pregnancy is somewhere between 1 and 3%. A lot of those women are women who have uh, older children who are toddlers, and especially in daycare, because that is where a lot of the CMV transmission happens, with the saliva and, and uh, urine shedding of the virus. Uh, that virus is very good at getting around a daycare room. Um, so that 1% to 3% of uh, new infections would lead to 10 to 30 primary infections in this 1,000 women. That is a, um, then leads to a very high rate of transmission. 30 to 40% of those newly infected women will pass the virus on to the baby. Um, and so this leads to um, somewhere between 3 and 12 women out of 1,000 passing CMV on to the baby. About a quarter of which will go on to have defects, and um, many of those will be long-term. Now, if we look on the other side, What's really interesting is that that number at the bottom is almost the same. And that's confusing because if you have some immunity, shouldn't it be protective, at least partially? And so, so this is breaking down the numbers that um, when you have CME previous, prior to, to pregnancy, you uh, carry the virus in your body because you don't get rid of it. And um, so there's some risk that you'll reactivate the virus. Maybe, um, maybe some virus is replicating in the blood and then it's transferred across the placenta to the fetus. But we don't know what that rate is. We, we aren't able to measure that. And so we don't know the contribution of reactivation to the congenital transmission that happens in people that are pre previously infected. However, what has been measured is how many times does a woman who has immunity to CMV prior to pregnancy become reinfected during pregnancy? Because again, the immunity, natural immunity is not protective against reinfection. And um, because the uh, populations who have CMV cohort together where um, uh, CMB is very geographically distributed, racially distributed, um, differentially with the Caucasian population have a lot lower um, seropositivity rate than Latino or African-American population. So there's actually a lot of transmission that happens in a seropositive person, probably because of the other people that they live their lives with. Um, and so that leads to somewhere between two and 300 maternal infections out of 1,000 women, reinfections. Um, and we know that when we measure uh, CMV in the baby afterwards, which we can do with a simple test of virus in the saliva, um, that's actually only a small proportion of those women who are reinfected during pregnancy are passing the virus on to the baby, somewhere in the order of 3 to 5%. And, and what's notable is that these numbers are tenfold different. Um, and Mark Schleiss and I wrote an article that laid this out because it is complicated to understand that even though we see the same number of infections in a 1,000 seronegative versus seropositive women, um, that the numbers still reflect that there is partial protection from that natural immunity.
But what all this is saying is that um, while natural immunity may provide some partial protection against CMV congenital transmission, it's not completely protective. And so, therefore, a vaccine has to be different than the immunity that's afforded by the, vac the virus infection itself. So um, the most successful CMV vaccine um, tested to date um, is a glycoprotein B subunit vaccine. So that's a vaccine that um, platform that came about after uh, live attenuated vaccines and killed vaccines. Um, examples of subunit vaccines would be the HPV vaccine, would be um, the new shingles vaccine. Those are subunit vaccines. So that approach was tried with um, one of the uh, proteins that's included in the Moderna vaccine, which is the glycoprotein B. That's the main um, receptor that the virus uses to enter a host cell. And so that seems like an um, appropriate target. Um, so this subunit vaccine made by Sanofi was um, added with an adjuvant, which is something that makes the immune response um, higher, brings in the immune cells. They added an adjuvant, that's a fairly potent adjuvant, um, and gave three doses to women who were postpartum, uh, recently postpartum from their delivery. And the reason why they chose that population is because, like I said, women who have a toddler are much more likely to become infected. And so that was a way to, um, to increase the potential risk of acquisition. There are about 400 women who went into the study and it was split um, by placebo or vaccine. And the results were um, showing some protection by the vaccine. It was about 50% just reached significance. Um, but this was a big, a big win, but not quite high enough to go on to the next phase of clinical translation. But uh, at the same time, uh, uh, the same vaccine was given to a separate population, an adolescent population, because this may be the true target of the vaccine um, where you want to catch women before they go into pregnancy. And so uh, the same vaccine schedule and the same vaccine was given to about 400 adolescent women, um, half of which got the vaccine and half got uh, placebo. And remarkably to me is the same results were achieved. It didn't quite reach significance of that p-value less than 0.05, those of you who know statistics, um, but it still reached that right around 50% protection. And actually, a third trial that I'm not even going to show you data on is um, this vaccine was given to transplant patients, and the transplant patients went on to have about 50% protection against reactivation of their virus. So pretty consistent results from this one protein, um, again, just one of the two proteins that are targeted by the Moderna vaccine. So um, we, uh, in thinking about why, the, uh, why other vaccine platforms may have failed, um, so the virus, again, we talked about has um, co-evolved with the human immune system for so long that it has the ability to evade uh, the immune response with several different uh, mechanisms. Um, there is this frequent exposure to high levels of virus. When um, uh, children are shedding the virus, in particular, they shed high amounts of virus in their saliva and in their urine. And then um, uh, subsequent attempts or uh, previous attempts to the subunit vaccine were live attenuated vaccines um, because that would follow from the work that was done uh, with the measles vaccine, rubella vaccine. That um, type of approach was not protective against new acquisition and, of course, have concerns that that type of approach would um, have the ability to uh, traverse the placenta as well. And then the subunit vaccines that were only partially protected. So there are some things that we know about um, immune correlates of protection, but this work is still going on. And this is the type of benchmark that you really need to know whether your phase one or your phase two trial is looking on target 
to have a, a surrogate endpoint of protection. And that doesn't yet exist for CMB, but there, there is continued work um, going into how we can establish that. Some of the things that have been established is uh, neutralizing antibodies, which you'll hear about um, from the data from the vaccine. This has been um, the gold standard for virus vaccines since uh, the beginning of vaccines. That's how a measles vaccine was developed, how a chickenpox vaccine was developed, polio vaccine, et cetera. So neutralizing antibodies does seem to be very important, and we know it's the way that you basically prevent the, the virus from affecting the next cell. So neutralizing antibodies have been associated with protection against congenital transmission, as well as how well your antibody binds to its target. Um, some more uh, finer, refined data says that prevention of the virus infection of a certain type of cell, which is the epithelial cell, and uh, the pentamer is required for entry into that type of cell. But also the glycoprotein B vaccines, in addition to the subunit trials, the glycoprotein B vaccines have been associated with protection just in natural immunity. In studies that we did last year looking at um, breastfeeding babies who are exposed to the virus that's present in breast milk, because, again, this virus is very good at getting out into mucosal fluids, that then is the way that it spreads. And so breast milk of CMD-positive women often has um, CMD in it. And so we studied in babies that uh, were receiving CMD-positive uh, breast milk from their moms, what were the antibody responses in those babies that prevented the acquisition. And the glycoprotein B vaccine uh, antibodies came up as potentially protective. And then induction of T cell responses we do think of as a, a, a potential important component, and that's because we know that people with T cell immune deficiencies, like transplant patients, like AIDS patients, are the ones that go on to have problems with CMV disease. So um, just a little bit of data that, that we've generated from looking back at those subunit vaccines that I talked about that were partially protective. It's actually the perfect setting in which to see what predicted, if half of the vaccinees were protected, what predicted who was going to become infected versus remain uninfected. And with between the two trials, the adolescent and postpartum trials, um, we had enough uh, vaccinees who became infected versus didn't become infected to run a whole bunch of immune assays to figure out which one actually was different between the, um, the vaccinees who became infected versus didn't become infected. And so this is the type of work towards an immune correlate that's really needed to guide vaccine design. And um, we had a finding of an unexpected uh, antibody response that was predictive of protection in those glycoprotein B vaccine trials. And here's a depiction of it, that um, the glycoprotein B protein of the virus expressed on the surface of a cell was um, higher magnitude in the women who were protected uh, that received the vaccine versus the women who received the vaccine but were not protected. Um, and this was not the same result if you just looked at the binding to the vaccine itself. So uh, if we showed you the data from the binding to the vaccine itself, it would look the same between those two groups. So this was the differentiating antibody response. And in thinking about what that really means, that's really just a um, surrogate for uh, what, the, um, what an infected cell would look like, the glycoprotein D on an infected cell. And so we did that assay to see if we could repeat the same results and did, in fact, see the similar results where the uninfected vaccinees were protected when they had higher magnitude of that um, binding antibody response to the cell-associated form of GB. So this is uh, the type of work that will help to guide um, endpoints for vaccines in the future. But um, why would the mRNA vaccine uh, platform be very good for CMD? Um, I think that, for one, um, there have been several studies now that have shown um, that the high magnitude responses that are elicited with uh, mRNA 
as well as durable antibody responses. And that's very important because we're going to be immunizing uh, women, likely in adolescenthood, around the time they're getting their HPV vaccine, because pregnancy can happen in a wide range of ages. Um, and so it, the, the vaccine response needs to be durable, and uh, mRNA is put into be a, a durable platform. Um, also, what I just showed you, that it seems important that the um, antibody responses are able to recognize the cell-associated form of the glycoprotein rather than the soluble form of the glycoprotein, mRNA would be very good at that because mRNA is basically relying on the human cells to express the glycoprotein. And so that also fits with what we've seen from our basic research. And then another piece that I didn't have time to show you is we've seen there maybe have been some distracting epitopes on that soluble GB protein that was partially protective, where a lot of the binding antibody response went to this cytosolic um, portion of the glycoprotein, which is the portion of the protein inside the cell. And that's not going to be useful in preventing infecting the next cell or preventing infection of the placenta, et cetera. And this um, type of approach, that um, the cytosolic portion of the protein will be inside the cell like it is in a natural infection. So these are the reasons why I think the mRNA vaccine is a very promising approach for CMV. So in summary, um, I hope I've convinced you that the CMV vaccine is highly needed. I think the next two speakers will drive that home also. Um, natural immunity is only partially protective, uh, but there are lessons we can learn from natural immunity, and we should keep learning, and we should keep learning from all our vaccine trials, what, what it's telling us about what's protective. Um, novel platforms are needed for this. We've, we've run through uh, the gamut of standard platforms in CMB, and they haven't been uh, effective enough. And so novel platforms like RNA are needed. Um, and I think it's really important that mRNA uh, vaccine will express the um, glycoproteins on the surface of a cell um, instead of um, in, in a soluble form. So that will uh, induce the type of immune responses that we've been able to show now seem to be protective. So thank you very much. Keep it on for QA, I think. Thank you, Sally. Um, so with that, let's talk about our vaccine and uh introduce the data. The uh the actual vaccine we have, as Dr. Permar said, will encode for these proteins from within the cell, and so we'll express them on the cell surface. And we're really talking about encoding the two receptors, the two hooks that the virus needs to enter cells. One is GB, which we saw on its own can already give us 50% protection. And the other one, and I think this has been a learning of more recent years, is the pentameric complex. It's a complicated protein that the virus requires to attach to its epithelial cells. These are the cells that line our mucosal surfaces. Uh, these are the cells, the first port of entry, if you will, for any viral infection. And so teaching the immune system to recognize that receptor, that hook, uh, we believe is likely a critical component. And in fact, it's one of the components that has been missing from the history of uh, attenuated uh, vaccines. The ability to package all six mRNAs here in one lipid nanoparticle is really what allows us to effectively introduce a vaccine that will then code simultaneously for these two antigens. So let's talk about the trial design, and I have to uh, give a shout-out here to uh, Dr. Lori Tanter from my team. Everything I'm telling you here, I'm just the, uh, uh, the privileged speaker to actually represent the work of a large team. Uh, Dr. Panther was a, a, um, 
Harvard investigator for many years, and uh, when I met her, I actually convinced her, rather than running clinical trials out there in the real world, come and help me uh, do some of this work. And so we're, uh, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, the trial, uh, the Lorraine machine design, was essentially a phase one, a typical phase one for a vaccine. As you've heard, we need to think differently about the seropositives and seronegatives. They have different levels of pre-existing immunity, and what we what the vaccine will accomplish is different in both of these. And so we've got cohorts that are either seropositives or seronegatives, and what we've done here is your traditional dose escalation. The dose range that we studied here was quite wide, 30, 100, and, uh, 30 90, and 180 microgram, uh, but not surprising if you step back and think of the dose ranges that I've showed you data with for our platform today. We've studied anywhere from 10 to 300 microgram writ large in our vaccine portfolio, and at about 100 microgram is where typically uh, an mRNA vaccine um, reaches its, its uh, peak efficiency for, for most of the vaccines that we've described. Uh, this trial launched about 18 months ago, and today we're here to describe the first interim results. The trial is actually doing zero, two, and six months of immunization. What I'm going to show you is uh, the first set of data, uh, the majority of which is after the second dose. So at month three, a month after the second dose. Okay? So these are the data. And as a, as a way to think about this, these are the seronegative subjects. So these are the, the people who had no pre-existing immunity, and you can see the initial baselines are, are, are pretty close to zero, sort of below the limit of detection. And what, where seropositives are in these numbers is around the 5,000. And, and what does that mean? It means you can dilute the serum of a seropositive per, person about 5,000 times, and you'll still retain neutralizing activity against the virus. And so that's the benchmark, because we know seropositives already have some immunity to the virus. And so can we take the seronegatives who've got none and get them to that level? That was the goal of this vaccine. That's how you benchmark. There is no yet correlative protection. So what you try to do is bring those who've never seen the virus to have an immune response that's similar or above to those that have already seen the virus. And we know, based on the work uh, that's been shared in others, that it is it, the neutralizing activity against both epithelial cells and fibroblasts is the likely correlate that's meaningful to be able to protect these people. And so how do we do if you look at the seronegatives? We've actually got them to the level and above those of the seropositives. In fact, three to five-fold higher than the seronegatives after two doses, and you can see here the prime and boost, that 30,000 is about five-fold or higher versus the 5,000 I've described. So that's how we did against this complex antigen, the protein. Uh, how did we do against GB? We got them there as well. We got them to the level of the seropositive, and that's the component that we already know in and of itself has 50% of protection. So this is really the primary goal here, to show that we can take the people who are seronegative and boost their immune response to the level at or above that of a seropositive subject. How did we do on seropositives? Well, this was uh, really reassuring, because if you think about it, seropositives, they've already got immunity. They've seen the virus. They're relatively protected, and yet for these, we can further boost their immune response. Now, if you think of other vaccines, we typically, if somebody's already been immunized or, or infected, we typically think of a two- to four-fold increase of that basic immunization as significant. And yet this vaccine, 
as measured by neutralizing titers against the epithelial cells at a and where these titers are removed. And that's against the epithelial cells. We got to the two to four range clearly against the GB. So even in subjects who've already been infected and have some pre-existing immunity, this vaccine that encodes for these two epitopes can further boost their immune response and the ability then in their blood to have neutralizing activity against CMV. How do we do in terms of safety profile? No big surprises, I think, is the bottom line. We collect safety here the way you do in all typical phase one vaccines. There's an FDA guidance of how you uh, send up questionnaires. You typically look for injection-related reactions, pain at the site. You look for systemic flu-like symptoms. They're coded, they're graded according to uh, a known scale. And what you see here in general is consistent with what we've seen to date in the rest of our vaccine portfolio. Now, I'm showing you the results after the second vaccination. Typically, after the first vaccination, they were milder, and so I'm showing you data that already encompasses that. And the other thing that's worth noting is it seems that the um, frequency and severity of the adverse events is a tad higher in the seropositives than it is in the seronegatives. Now, that's not a surprise if you remember the numbers I showed you in the previous graph or chart, right? If somebody's already got an immune response that's primed and ready to see this virus, in fact, has been cohabitating with this virus for decades, and suddenly they get a boost of titers above that, I've just woken up the immune system, and so it's not a surprise that that waking up is manifest not just as a lab assay on the titers, but actually in some transient flu-like symptoms. We saw nothing that was unexpected. There were no vaccine-related serious adverse events, and uh, typical to uh, vaccine-related adverse events, these come on on the evening, and then by a day or two later, they're gone. And so that's the safety profile that we've seen uh, for this vaccine. Now, here's another interesting data point. Um, when we started this trial, we actually started a group of sentinels with an initial process. We then took a four-month hit and, and, and had a better manufacturing process. Along the way, what it meant was we were actually accumulating some data in the sentinels of the very first batch that we did. And that's this, uh, this, the, the dotted line here. The data I've just showed you is the solid lines on this graph, and you can see the two processes are by and large the same. But for the dotted lines, these are four subjects per group. We've actually now vaccinated them again. We've given them the six-month boost, and we follow them out to a year. And so while these are small ends, what you can see here is that not only do we get to the levels I described at three months after the second vaccination, we can actually further boost them later and maintain those levels at least out to a year at or above the levels of an immune response of somebody who's seropositive. So we've got now data for persistence of the immune response. Now, if you step back, there's not a big surprise here. First of all, this is what you'd expect from a vaccine that fundamentally mimics a natural infection and how it primes the immune response. Second, we've actually already described data for persistence for our influenza vaccine, for our chikungunya vaccine, so these are not new data. But for the application that we're talking about for this unmet need, the ability to protect a woman for a long time is actually a critical feature uh, of being successful for the end game here. So it's very reassuring to see that we can maintain those levels of protective antibody levels of seropositives out to at least a year with this vaccine. The last piece I'd say is that 
uh, it's hard to tell, but this graph is actually a log scale. And so if you look at the dose response there, that's actually a significant difference even out to uh, six months in a year. The difference between the blue and yellow dot is still uh, at least a twofold difference. So we've demonstrated a nice dose response curve. We've demonstrated persistence. We've demonstrated that we can actually achieve levels of uh, immunogenicity that are at or higher where the seropositives are. And we've demonstrated that seropositives, we can even further boost them by about tenfold where they live. And we're boosting them against the specific receptors that a cell needs to then attach to other cells. And so if you think about the CMV genome that has all these other 250 genes, some of them wreak havoc with your immune system and actually dampen an immune response, we're actually going after the specific required antigen and are further boosting that. So what's next? Um, this was really exciting and reassuring to us to see as a result of phase one. And of course, the question is, okay, how do you get to the end game here? I think that the, the immediate next step for us is to go and confirm the dose uh, and confirm our uh, pivotal manufacturing process in a uh, phase two setting. And so you'll see us in the near-term launch a, uh, a phase two study that's really honing in on, on the dose range, that's testing that uh, pivotal process that uh, Juan will talk about in a minute. We are already uh, well on our way. We've submitted this protocol for review to the agency. We've picked the site, uh, and uh, I look forward to this trial starting shortly. This is also designed to give us a relatively rapid readout. Uh, we'll make decisions based on the immunogenicity we will see at the three-month time point, again, a month after the second dose. So what's the end game here? Well, if you want to get to the ability to improve the unmet need, to protect babies from infection from women who get infected when they're pregnant, maybe even have a benefit in the seropositives. Uh, the question is, how do you design that pivotal trial? And I think this is another area where we're fortunate that there has been some movement in recent years. So historically, if you read the literature, there's been a lot of discussion on, well, if you want to say that you're preventing congenital infection, you have to go prove it. And to go prove it, you actually have to go immunize tens of thousands of women and wait for them to get pregnant and select enough cases, et cetera. And where I think uh, we're, we're, we're in a fortunate place is after having talked about this for, for a number of years, we recently asked FDA for, for pretty specific guidance in a Type C meeting, how, what do you think about the approval point? And the advice back was that you should consider the end point of preventing infection, just preventing primary infection in women of childbearing age. If you can show that, you can show that with a safe and tolerable profile, that could be the basis for licensure. And so that's really a game changer for us because now if you step back and think about it, okay, yes, the end game is ultimately showing we prevent congenital infection, and we'll probably go do that, but we can do that in the post-licensure setting with real-world evidence, but we can actually in a phase three just show prevention of infection. And that means that the phase three can probably be done with about 8,000 subjects or maybe even less if you do the math. We're still in the planning stages of here, but it's a phase three trial that now looks feasible for uh, a company like us. And so we're super excited that we actually have a way forward all the way to licensure here and a basis for that. We've actually started the prep work to understand what the feasibility for that trial would look like. Uh, 
As part of that prep work, let me invite my uh, colleague uh, Juan uh, to talk about uh, where we are in terms of manufacturing. MRNA uh, every month, okay? And um, uh, so the facility was finished in, um, in July um, uh, uh, last year. We produced our first uh, um, GMP clinical batch in August. And since then, we've produced around 70 batches to date. That is more in one year than we have produced in previous years altogether. So that gives you an idea on how much we are accelerating and the opportunity that, uh, that, um, uh, that the Norwood uh, site provides. Here are a few pictures of, uh, of the site. We wanted to design for quality, for speed, um, uh, and with tremendous flexibility. We wanted to do from scratch. It is completely digitized. It is paperless, um, uh, and, uh, and it is designed in a way that fosters a lot of collaboration um, uh, across different people. Some of you have had the opportunity to, uh, to go there. For those of you that haven't, uh, as Tal said, you're invited to come, uh, just let me know. Um, we finished the facility a year ago, 
And only a few months after, we were surprised by uh, ISPE, the International Society of Pharmaceutical Engineers. Um, uh, I am sure many of you are familiar with them. Um, uh, and um, basically, we were awarded the Facility of the Future Award just a few months after. And we are going to be, um, we are one of the finalists for the Facility of the Year Award that it is going to be awarded in a, in a, in a few weeks in, uh, in Las Vegas. So we are waiting um, uh, for that. Uh, we are very proud of the site. Uh, the site is, uh, is uh, really working hard, uh, including the uh, personalized cancer vaccine area that it is personalized medicine uh, even, uh, even inside the site. Um, very proud of the team uh, and what they have accomplished. So how did we arrive into Norwood? Because we didn't have it at the beginning. Uh, and of course, um, in the early stages, you don't need um, a clinical, you don't need DNP, and so um, you start operationalizing all the all the areas as you move your pipeline. And uh, one of the things that we realized is we started to rely on CMOs in third parties, but they were all over the world. They were analytical in the Pacific Coast, um, uh, aseptic filling in Massachusetts, or in Europe. Um, uh, we were then plasmid in another place, mRNA in another place. We, we realized that integrating a number of different CMOs with the type of ambition that we had was going to be very, very tricky. And this is the idea that led us into, into, um, uh, into building the site. Um, and, um, and at this moment in time, we are putting all our growing pipeline in there. We believe that Norwood is a competitive advantage not only for CMB, but for the rest of our platform. And the reason I'm stating that is we are making all the different products, and as a platform, all the products are made in a very, very similar way. So think about it. We have made 70 clinical batches, 70 clinical batches in the same facility. What we learn about one product in terms of process improvement, we can immediately apply to the next product. When we scale up, so, for instance, when we go from a batch of 10 grams mRNA, because at the beginning you need small quantities, and you need to go and scale to 50 grams, we don't need to be doing everything in terms of a scale-up. We do it for one product, and then we replicate that across the different products. That gives us a tremendous amount of flexibility, but also a tremendous amount of speed. It has been highlighted before as well that, um, yes, we produce large molecules, but we are not traditional biotech in that, um, in that sense. Um, I have built all over the world facilities for biotech with 10, 12,000 liter bioreactors. They are big monsters. You know, they, only the diameters are as big as, as this thing, and they go two or three stories high. And you have several of them that is immensely capital intensive, but at the same time, it takes a lot of time to be able to go and uh, operationalize a facility like this. We are a self-free um, uh, manufacturing um, operation. Uh, um, uh, we have a bioreactor in the site, and we call it the largest scale bioreactor. I see this side. Okay, so so that gives you an idea on on how we how fast we can scale up. And to put it in perspective with uh, um, uh, with uh, with the CMV vaccine, we are anticipating. Um, with um, um, uh, um, uh, existing uh, innovative vaccine pricing that are already in the market or taking that into consideration, that we can produce the CMV vaccine with uh, gross margins above 90%. Okay? So that, that is something that, uh, that it will be very, very important for us. 
So are we ready? Are we ready for phase two? Are we ready for subsequent uh, phases? Yes, we are. The vials that you see in, in the screen are not taken from an image bank of lyophilized vials. These vials are real CMB vials. They are ready to go. We have produced them. And, um, uh, and uh, we just got all the, um, uh, the, the quality control results associated with this specific batch. This is ready. Okay. And um, so this is the, this lyophilized image is going to be the one that we take to phase two. And it is the one that we intend to take to phase three and subsequently to commercialization. So Norwood side can support making that mRNA, making those LMPs. And, uh, and as we get ready, probably we are going to lean on, um, uh, on partners to produce aseptic filling and finishing as we move forward. So how much capacity would we have? So um, how much capacity do you need? Um, so the question is, we can produce 10 plus million um, uh, if we take into consideration that we need to make um, uh, uh, many other products. But if we dedicated the site only to a 100 microgram dose uh, vaccine like CMV could be, we could be producing 100 million doses just in the site. Okay? So, Tal, Stefan, um, uh, we are ready to go. I mean, tell me when and how much, and, uh, and we will go for it. Okay? So, this is it. Uh, let me introduce the next presenter. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Mike uh, Schleiss is coming um, uh, to do the next presentation. Thank you very much. Great, this image. I, I mean, I'm excited. We're ready to go. There it is. So that that is fantastic. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about cytomegalovirus vaccines to put it a little in a context for the audience. And one of the take-home points I want to make is that that this subunit approach that selects key CMB genes is fundamentally different than some of the vaccines we use in the clinic every day. Uh, MMR vaccine. Uh, varicella vaccine, chickenpox vaccine. These are whole virus vaccines that at some level attenuate a natural pathogen to a point where it induces immune responses but doesn't cause the disease. Now, there's a whole category of CMV vaccines that does that too, and that was alluded to a little bit earlier this morning, so I'll kind of review those differences as we move forward. But I think that's a key take-home point because one of the key things is safety a vaccine that goes out into the market, into clinical care, has to be widely perceived as, as safe, particularly if you're talking about adolescent populations. We live in a, a culture and in a society where there's so much anti-vaccine pushback and so much skepticism and um, vaccine uh, hesitancy that I think that's a key uh, message that we have to have moving forward. Well, we've heard about congenital CMV infection and how important it is as a cause of disability. Um, I won't belabor these points. This is the classic photo from um, decades ago now of a baby with microcephaly, small head, and the CAT scan of the baby's brain showing the calcium deposits. It's one of the classic and tragic findings of congenital TMV when it involves the brain. Uh, and this is the kind of thing we're trying to prevent. One of the really exciting things about this, this project, in my opinion, is that from the beginning, it's been targeted at preventing congenital CMV. So many pharmaceutical 
ventures into the cytomegalovirus workspace have started out by saying, let's see if we can do something about CMV in transplant recipients. Important, if you're a solid organ or bone marrow transplant recipient to get CMV disease, that's very devastating. But the requirements of a vaccine and the endpoints of a vaccine program, I think, are probably very different in healthy women than they are in transplant recipients. And so I love the fact that this is a program devoted to congenital CMV. Sally Permar already talked about how uh, the chief vaccine preventable causes of brain injury, neurologic damage, deafness have been solved in the past by vaccination. I remember when my daughter was a, an infant, the Haemophilus influenzae type B vaccines had literally just been licensed days before she was born and how anxious I was as a clinician seeing invasive Haemophilus disease every day uh, to find a pediatric practice in Seattle where I lived at the time that actually had the vaccine. I was calling all over town, do you have it yet? Do you have it yet? And, and that, that vaccine really changed pediatric care profoundly as did the rubella vaccine as we've already heard. And I'm hopeful that a CMV vaccine will have the same impact. The total number of babies that are injured in the United States and Europe from cytomegalovirus every year uh, is in the um, many thousands, and it's probably much higher than this actually in the developing world. We just don't have good data. Uh, but, but as we uh, learn more about CMV in the developing world where the prevalence of disease is actually going to be higher uh, than the United States and Europe, and we'll come back to that point in a couple of minutes, um, I think globally this could have a huge impact on, on child health. So uh, does immunity protect the fetus? And we've heard about this already this morning, this idea that if you get CMV and you recover from it and you go on with your life, well, you're not really quite completely protected. Uh, you reactivate the virus during the course of your lifetime. You get reinfected with new strains of the virus. That's really different, <laughs> really different conceptually than the measles, which if you recover from it, you don't get it again. You're immune. And, and so um, this is one of the underlying complexities of this crazy, crazy virus. It has all of these immune modulation genes, these immune evasion genes that allow people to get reinfected. Um, if you haven't sensed it already, I think one of the take-home messages is that eventually to protect babies against congenital CMV, we, we will need to give a vaccine to all women, whether they've had CMV in the past or, or not. And that's why the, the data that we saw from uh, Tall about boosting antibody titers in people who are already immune is really, really important, much more so than it would be for other traditional infectious disease pathogens. So there is evidence, um, as Sally alluded to, that immunity does provide some protection. It provides a, a big reduction in transmission, and it probably provides a decreased severity of disease if transmission does occur. Uh, and we've already heard about the economic benefits of CMV vaccination and how important those are. So I'll just sort of lay out four points that I think are important in CMV vaccines. Why don't we have one yet? Why has it been so difficult? Uh, the first one is we don't really know what the correlative protection is for the, the fetus, the, the developing baby, uh, and the maternal circulation, the, the placenta, that whole maternal, placental, fetal unit. What protects that from CMV if a woman gets an infection or is exposed? or reactivates the CMV that she's had for decades. Um, is it antibodies? Is it T cells? We know that both are important. 
Um, you've seen various versions of this slide already. The, the viral particle is, is very, very complex and has a, a, a lot of um, glycoproteins, as we've heard, studying the surface. These are the important signals or hooks, as we learned, heard, heard earlier. I love that metaphor, hooking the virus to the, the cell surface. CMV sets out to infect cells of very different types in the human body, uh, respiratory epithelial cells, brain cells, uh, uh, the cochlea, uh, and so these cells that we call epithelial, endothelial, fibroblasts um, require different hooks for the virus to hook into them. The virus also has all of these proteins that are sort of under the surface in this region that we call the tegument of the, the virus particle, and these are targets of T-cell immunity. Um, T-cell immune responses to CMV have been the cornerstone of many failed vaccine platforms that have come and gone uh, in the last decade. Uh, and, and so I think we still don't really know the overall importance of, of those antibody or those T-cell responses in protection of the fetus. Uh, clearly, this platform focuses on the outer proteins, the ones that are the so-called glycoproteins that involve the initial steps of infection. And so these are some of the, the proteins of emphasis, and we've heard a lot already about the glycoprotein B. Sally um, nicely reviewed the uh, efficacy studies from PASS and Bernstein looking at adjuvanted glycoprotein B. Um, so it was pretty good. Um, I'm from Minnesota, so we like to talk about how things there are generally pretty good. Um, but we need something better than pretty good for a, a, a vaccine that will protect against congenital CMV infections. And so that's where all of these other platforms and expression approaches have been used. And I won't belabor all of these points. Um, I'll just mention that a lot of these are in clinical trials. Um, a vector known as MVA vector. This has been a, an interesting uh, body of work performed by uh, Professor Donald Diamond at the City of Hope um, Oncology Center in Duarte, California. Um, some virus-like particles, work done by Bodo Plockster in Germany, uh, polyepitope vaccines, soluble, a soluble pentromer vaccine that's actually being uh, developed by um, GSK, and then we just heard about the Moderna messenger RNA platform. And so all of these uh, vaccines um, I think it's very exciting to see them move forward in the clinic, um, but the pentamer, that, that uh, group of five proteins, hence a pentamer that's involved in, in binding of virus particles to epithelial cells, I think is, is emerging as a, a key milestone, uh, a cornerstone of vaccine development. So um, I'll, I'll segue into just some comments about these live virus vaccines. Again, these are different than the messenger RNA vaccine platform or the purified protein platform because these vaccines are all generated against the backbone of an entire virus genome. And so many decades ago, highly passaged strains of CMV uh, went into human volunteers. Uh, these uh, had a really minimal efficacy, um, fortunately not much reactogenicity. However, it turned out that that pentamer that, I, that we heard about earlier wasn't really expressed naturally or normally in those attenuated vaccines. And so that led to um, uh, a number of trials uh, to try to optimize these vaccines to express that pentamer uh, 
but still retain safety. And so that um, Penchmer, again, in this cartoon, uh, shows the complexity of how this uh, protein, this pentameric complex, or PC, right, that doesn't stand for political correctness, it stands for pentameric complex, the five proteins that bind together uh, to allow binding of the virus particle to these epithelial cells. This is kind of the key addition that the Moderna platform adds that hasn't been in the adjuvanted GB vaccines that we heard about earlier. GB, as shown over here, um, uh, is important in binding to fibroblasts. But given the complexity of cytomegalovirus biology, you really need to block both of these binding steps to prevent infection. And so that's, that's really, in a nutshell, what this vaccine uh, is trying to do. Now, the, the Merck vaccine, V160, is, is different conceptually because it expresses the penamer. That's a, a big, big selling point of, of these trials of the Merck product. But it does it against the backbone of the entire viral genome. So, Every gene in the virus is present. The genome is modified in a way that allows the virus to not replicate. And so sometimes in the field we call these DISC vaccines. That acronym stands for Disabled Single Cycle DISC Vaccine. The hypothesis is that you'll generate broad immune responses to all of the gene products that are in that virus particle that I alluded to earlier, including those T-cell targets, uh, targets in the tegument of the virus. But, but in fact, um, we don't know that those are necessary for protection against congenital CMV. So this cartoon shows how the, 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 the Merck vaccine is made. It's done with sort of a poison pill that's built into the, the virus uh, that can only be overcome using this synthetic ligand called SHIELD-1. It doesn't even exist in nature, and so that's why the vaccine is considered to be safe enough for um, use in, in clinical practice. Um, so in, in the laboratory where the vaccine is manufactured, you can generate these disabled particles, but you can only see these particles replicate for one round after inoculation into, into a subject. They're disabled. And the idea then is that they'll, make, um, they'll induce antibodies to the pentamer along with another, a lot of other gene products. I loved in the last presentation how, how the, this idea of a cell-free uh, workplace, a cell-free GMP facility, it's really very elegant uh, because this, the Merck vaccine still very much depends upon having cells, cellular um, production lines where you can make these virus particles. Um, so, well, how does this virus, how does this vaccine work? It's gone into a lot of people. It's published now. And so this paper came out um, earlier this summer from Journal of Infectious Diseases from Stuart Adler et al. And what Merck did was they, they did, again, as we heard about already this morning, they have a dose escalation study where different amounts or different quantities of the vaccine were administered to volunteers. One of the arms of the study also included an adjuvant, uh, an immune stimulation molecule. We use adjuvants all the time in clinical practice in your primary care clinician's office for many vaccines. And so the best responses for this uh, V160 vaccine were seen with um, uh, the adjuvanted form of the vaccine. And using natural immunity as a benchmark, as you see in the dotted line here, um, the vaccines at highest doses with adjuvant 
we're, we're as good as natural immunity. Well, that's great if the goal is to try to protect a woman who's never had CMV, and you can at least confer for her the equivalent of uh, her neighbor who's had CMV in the past. We know that that doesn't completely protect against infection, but it does reduce the risk, reduce the severity. Um, but I think what we really need for a CMV vaccine program is something that's better than natural immunity. And think about that for a moment. You need a vaccine that's actually better than Mother Nature. Uh, that's a big challenge. But if we're going to prevent reinfections and transmissions of the fetus, that's the goal. And so this is where the preliminary data that we heard about from Paul is, is again, very exciting because here's your benchmark of natural immunity, and we can see that the mRNA platform is actually better. So different laboratories, different manufacturers, different experimental conditions. It wouldn't be exciting to see these run side-by-side, head-to-head in the same lab, but at least based on the published data and the data we've heard today, it suggests that the mRNA platform is superior to the V160 platform in inducing neutralizing antibody responses against that pentamer at that epithelial cell surface, uh, which um, it seems to be emerging as sort of the key parameter for CMV vaccine. Um, so what's the population that we need to immunize? And how do we deal with this problem of transmission from reinfection? Uh, this idea that even if you've had CMV decades ago, that it never really goes away. It's a latent herpes virus that reactivates. You can get reinfected with new strains. Uh, of course, we face this with flu every year, don't we? A flu shot every year because um, new strains of influenza virus form that our immune systems don't have experience with. Um, this slide makes the point that the prevalence of congenital CMV in a population is actually directly, not inversely, but directly proportional to the seroprevalence of CMV antibodies in um, women who live in that population. And, and so this, again, is uh, what some authorities, some authors have called the, the enigma of CMV immunity, the paradox of CMV immunity. If you Google those phrases, you can find a lot of interesting papers sort of pointing this, this problem out. This is one of the uh, major issues of CMV vaccination. Why do reinfections occur? This is a very highly cited paper by Bopana and colleagues from the New England Journal some years ago now, in which they looked at the acquisition of new peptide epitopes and, and used this to define the presence of a new infection in a woman who already had immunity. These new reinfecting strains can then be transmitted to the fetus. Now, they don't tend to cause much, as much severe disease as a primary infection in pregnancy, but 10 to 15% of those babies may still go on to have hearing loss. And so an asymptomatic baby at birth that looks healthy and normal, if that baby has CMV, they're still at substantial risk. We don't recognize those babies as clinicians because uh, how, how can you make an asymptomatic baby better? This becomes a very powerful driving force for newborn CMV screening. That's a whole other conversation in its own, own right and an interesting one. New York State passed a bill this year uh, that, that now has uh, opened the door to screening some newborn infants for congenital CMV. Uh, and that might be a very exciting part of a post-vaccine licensure surveillance program uh, as these vaccines move forward in clinical practice. Um, we heard earlier about the, the power calculations that would be required if the endpoint is disease in the newborn infant 
or transmission to the fetus. Um, but it, Moderna has um, nicely laid out the rationale for, in their conversations with the FDA, how uh, an endpoint of preventing infection in the woman may be sufficient for moving a product forward to the licensure phase. And I think that would be very exciting and would be justifiable scientifically. Um, and this just summarizes some of the other um, issues with CMV vaccination uh, and as they relate to who you would immunize. And so, uh, you know, we've had some discussions earlier today about how the adolescent would probably be the key target, and that makes a, a certain amount of sense um, getting to young women before they enter their childbearing age. Um, um, waning immunity from vaccination could be a problem, though, if you immunize the 12-year-old, uh, and that immunity needs to last until she's in her 20, into her 20s or 30s or even 40s. Uh, during her, her childbearing years. So how many boosters would be required? Would there be, would it be better to have a strategy of immunizing women within the context of obstetrical practices? There's even been some discussion about how immunizing all toddlers in group daycare might be the best target population. Let's get this virus at its source, uh, because toddlers in group daycare centers are often the vehicle that brings CMV home to their, their mothers. Uh, who is be, be becoming pregnant um, um, are then at risk. And so I, I think uh, this will be an interesting discussion moving forward who, who should be who should be immunized. And so um, these are, gen again, just some of the other populations. Universal vaccination of all uh, children, seronegative women. We probably need to immunize seropositives as well, although the phase three studies will, I think, most likely be done in seronegatives. Uh, and these are um, important issues moving forward. I'll just finish then by mentioning a little bit of the last challenge as I see it with congenital CMV vaccine, which is nobody knows about <laughs> congenital CMV. Uh, you know, I've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of babies over the years um, um, with congenital CMV that I've seen in my clinical practice or in the context of clinical research studies. And almost without exception, I, I've never, maybe, maybe I can count on one hand the number of times a, a woman or a family have told me that they ever even heard of this before it happened to them. Uh, and that's a problem. Uh, you know, many of us in the audience with gray hair remember the public service announcements back in the 60s. I remember the 60s. Um, uh, for rubella, right? If you, if you, if you're pregnant, you should be careful. If you're around a child with German measles, you should get immunized. We don't have that same sort of media awareness, media savvy, uh, and knowledge, uh, and, and that's a problem. And so one of the things I love about democracy is that it, when it works well, it, it comes from the people, and, and women have voted with their feet. They've talked to their representatives. Uh, a mom who um, I, I worked with in Portland, Oregon, uh, who had a child with CMV, uh, actually met her representative um, at Starbucks uh, in Selwood, if anyone knows where that is. Um, and this is not an advertisement for Starbucks, but that's how they initiated the conversation. It went from that to a bill in the Oregon legislature to a debate on the floor to uh, success. And so they have legislation now that, that tells the state health department that, um, hey, you've got to fund programs to tell women about CMV and inform them. And, and of course, when the medical school found out about this, they were a little bit mad because they weren't included in the discussion. Um, but, but a lot of states have done this now. We have a similar bill in Minnesota 
that we're, we're trying to get through. I mentioned the legislation in New York. Um, these bills have a, com a, a number of unique flavors that vary from state to state. Some of them um, are done, the best ones, I think, are the, the ones that are done uh, and passed with the collaboration and cooperation with the state health departments. Um, it's hard to get a uh, fiscal note for a lot of these, but the best bills are the ones that are funded to provide resources to increase education and awareness. Some of these bills are linked to a mandate that says if a baby in the newborn nursery, nursery fails their newborn hearing screen, uh, which about 1% of all babies do, they just don't pass their newborn hearing screen, that baby should be tested for CMV. The first bill in the country actually had this mandate um, in Utah, and that's led to a lot of interesting data. So this is a big challenge, I think, to the CMV vaccine field. I think any program of, of CMV vaccines, any phase three studies that move forward, really ought to be done in conjunction with resources earmarked for uh, um, knowledge and awareness to help put this on the landscape. The CDC has done a good job in recent years of increasing awareness, and the webpage there has a lot of uh, valuable information, and, and it's been a much, much uh, um, more highly emphasized part of the CDC mission in, in recent years. This is Kelly Flynn, um, who's a state senator in Minnesota, in, introduced legislation, uh, uh, and um, actually one of my patients right here. Um, I, I won't play the video. You can look at it if you'd like on YouTube. Um, but I'll conclude and just say there's a major public health need for congenital CMV vaccine. There are a variety of vaccines in the clinic. I hope I've made the point about the importance of the pentameric complex and antibody responses to that and GB, presumably working in synergy to block binding of the virus to the cell and prevent infection. Um, we've also talked about how live attenuated vaccines probably um, have some safety concerns that, that subunit vaccines based on individual gene, cloned genes don't have. Uh, and, and these four areas of, of uh, knowledge and awareness that I, um, uh, I think are needed as, as the vaccine field moves forward. So thank you all for your attention. I look forward to the question and answer period. Good morning. Um, my name's Laura Riley, and uh, I'm a high-risk obstetrician here in New York now, but I was at Mass General for 23 years. Um, uh, not only am I a high-risk obstetrician, but I also um, did a fellowship in infectious disease. So I've spent pretty much my entire clinical career, um, unfortunately, taking care of um, moms with this disease um, and then uh, helping to follow them, you know, through pregnancy. So I think you've heard a ton already, um, probably everything I was going to say you've already heard um, for two or three speakers. So I, I'm going to tell a story and then um, sort of explain um, why I think um, from an OB standpoint, why I think the vaccine is absolutely critical um, and why I think we haven't made very much progress over the last sort of over my um, entire career uh, for these children. So the story I'm going to tell, I can tell because it's already been published. Um, it was a case report in the New England Journal, and it was a patient of mine, um, a woman who was uh, 42 years old, 41, 42 years old. She had years and years of infertility, um, and um, she had tried everything known to mankind to get pregnant. Um, she and her husband were unable to get pregnant, so they decided to go to Ethiopia 
and they were going to um, adopt a baby. And so they, you know, sort of went through that whole process. She goes off to Ethiopia. She has to spend, I think it was like two or three weeks in the um, uh, adoption agency, just getting used to the baby and doing, you know, everything that you need to do to get all prepared. Um, she did all of that. This is a totally healthy woman. She did all of that. Um, she stayed for, you know, two or three weeks. And when she um, came back to the U.S., she had a low-grade fever. She didn't feel herself. Um, and uh, so she went off to her PCP, and um, essentially she had the mono-like illness, and so they screened her for um, CMV. It took a little while to get there, but on top of it, you know, this is someone with years of infertility. She was pregnant. So... And, and she wasn't using birth control because she didn't think she could get pregnant. And so, you know, it was just like perfect storms, horrible. So I actually met her at 14 weeks gestation. Um, she was probably 9 or 10 weeks when she um, uh, got this mono-like illness. It turned out, long story short, it turned out to be CMV. So for this woman, it turned out to be probably primary CMV. And... Um, you know, it was a difficult diagnosis to make. The CMV avidity test, which is what we all rely on to tell us sort of, you know, the general timing, um, led me astray, actually. Um, didn't give me the information that I really needed to do a good counsel, to do good counseling of this patient. Long story short, um, we ended up doing, um, because it looked like she had primary CMV, looked like she probably had it sometime in the first trimester, um, and I'll show you some data why we are concerned about the timing. Um, she um, decided to do an amniocentesis. So now she's home with her two Ethiopian children that she has adopted. Um, she's newly pregnant. She's incredibly excited. Um, and we have this discussion. I say, look, you need to have an amniocentesis. Um, we do an ultrasound. The baby looks pristine. Everything looks totally perfect, and I'll explain to you why that was important. And we do an amniocentesis, and within 12 hours of doing the amnio, the lab called me to say, this lady has CMV everywhere. Like, this is the fastest we've ever seen this grow. I'm thinking, oh, my God, PCR positive, everything. So I have this long conversation with the patient. I tell her, you know, what we know, and given the timing, and given all the possibilities, this woman, this couple is, is devastating. And to, to, this, to this day, I have goosebumps sort of over this conversation. Here's a couple that's wanted nothing more than a baby for 10 or 12 years. They finally get there, and I tell them this devastating news, and they decide, you know what, we've got two kids. We, we, can't, we can't take any chances. And so then we have to do a pregnancy termination. And now we're doing a pregnancy termination at, like, you know, 18 weeks or, no, actually it was beyond that because we waited a while to do her amnio. Um, and so she was maybe 21 weeks gestation. This is not a good situation for any couple to ever have to be in. It is uncomfortable for the person doing the counseling and not being sure about what you're saying and, you're steering people in a direction, maybe, maybe not. You're putting them in difficult situation. So this is kind of where I see it all, you know, as one of those people who's stuck in that small consult room trying to help people make these difficult decisions. So I'm going to show just a little bit of data. Um, 
this is the OB's perspective. So you've heard this before. I think, you know, these are the epidemiologic factors that we're concerned about. Um, I think one of the speakers said early on, I think it's really important to understand that this is a disease, or CMV, I should say, seropositivity, is much more common in, in patients with lower socioeconomic status. It's seen much more commonly in, in um, uh, black versus uh, white patients and, or patients with um, Mexican ethnicity. Um, and um, it's seen, obviously, um, in, in those with higher parity, as well as uh, residents in, in uh, developing countries. And so if you think about it, the people who are at highest risk for becoming seropositive with CMB are usually the ones with the least um, resources to actually take care of these children that are now devastated. Um, the other thing that's really obviously very tricky, and you've heard a lot about this, is the fact that there's multiple routes of transmission. And so when we talk about, you know, how do you counsel pregnant women, well, there's a million things you're telling them that they can't touch, they can't eat, they can't do this, can't do that. It really is not practical, um, which I think is the other thing that's really important here. So what are the con annual um, seroconversion rates? So let me just say the background um, piece of information. Just to think about the U.S. alone, there are 4 million births in this country a year. Um, and so we're talking very large numbers. And when you look, you know, worldwide, we're talking about a lot of children who have the potential to be devastated. Um, so if you look at just pregnant women in general, this is just uh, one study in the literature, but it's the one that most of us use in, in our thinking about this. Um, looking at all pregnant women, the seroconversion rate per pregnancy is about 2.3%. Um, I think um, what, what is more important or equally um, uh, important and becomes a counseling issue is those that are daycare providers, those that are stuck sort of with the kids slobbering all over everything and it lives on the surface of, you know, every toy and then they give it to each um, other child, including their daycare um, provider, um, that's really important. And then as you can see, the, the um, parents of children who are either shedding or not, not shedding actually um, uh, is also um, an important vector. And so in terms of maternal disease, these are the things I think about as an obstetrician and become important when we're trying to counsel patients about what may or may not happen. You've heard um, primary CMV. It may be symptomatic, but for the, the vast majority of people, it's asymptomatic. This patient sort of came in with, you know, a placard, you know, saying, I have CMV. Um, you know, she had the mono-like illness, but the vast majority that I've seen in my career didn't have anything go on. And so we figured out the CMV from their children rather than from them. Um, reactivation, again, may have, you know, a latent CMV may have, you know, absolutely no symptoms. So it's hard for us as OBs to know that this is something we should be worried about. And then, obviously, reinfection with a different strain. Maybe you have symptoms, maybe you don't. Most don't. Um, so here's, here's where we're left um, in obstetrics. So the current recommendations, because of all of the things that you've heard this morning, the current recommendations are really only to test pregnant women who have that mono-like illness, because you need to understand that. The second biggest group that gets tested during pregnancy are going to be uh, those women who are carrying fetuses that have anomalies or findings that could be consistent with CMV. And it, is, it can be quite the hunt. Um, this first ultrasound um, on the right, um, this baby has um, calcifications, which is um, something that we're always concerned about. 
Um, the second one um, is hypoechoic um, bowel, so the bowel is bright like bone. The problem with that one is that you end up doing a lot of CMV screening for kids that have a whole bunch of other things. So if the baby swallows blood, it has echogenic bowel. If the baby has um, Down syndrome, it could have echogenic bowel. So it's a, it's sort of, it, it usually isn't CMV, but we have to look for it. Um, and then the last one um, is, again, uh, periventricular. Oh, I'm sorry. So the first one had um, large ventricles, so ventricular medley. The last one is um, calcifications in the brain. Any of those things that we see will prompt us to look for CMV and other um, uh, viral infections. So in terms of transmission rates, this is the data that we use to sort of counsel patients once we figure out that they've had primary um, CMV. Um, <clears throat> and we, um, the transmission rate, I should say, also depends in some ways on um, the gestational age, um, which we're uh, doing the counseling and, and guessing on um, the timing of the, um, of the infection. And so you can see that um, there is um, some uh, transmission, even if they um, get the infection just prior to pregnancy. The reason this becomes an important issue is because what we see not infrequently these days is that um, people doing IVF actually will test for CMV. Um, and when they do that, every now and then they get someone who's going to be CMV positive, and then we're trying to figure out when was it, you know, was it far enough you know, prior to your, you know, um, getting your blood drawn, that we can still do your transfer. You can just imagine you've taken a bajillion drugs, spent $20,000, ready to have your IVF transfer, and they come see me and I say, oh, it's probably not a good idea. You should wait three months. That doesn't go over well either. Um, and then the other issue, obviously, is um, these other trimesters. I think the main point about this in terms of transmission rate is that um, transmission happens all through pregnancy. Um, so there's no safe time. Um, and that's very disconcerting for patients as well. Um, and then uh, the timing of the infection is important for a whole bunch of reasons, but certainly important when you're talking about what the, the level of damage potentially to children, right? So when everything's being formed, uh, when all those organs are being formed in the first and half, first half of the second um, trimester as well, um, that's when we see the most damage. Um, but the brain is developing all through pregnancy, right till the end, and kids out in the first year of life, in which case um, anything that um, can affect that is going to affect the, the brain, hence the neurodevelopmental delays that we see. The other reason that the timing is important is because in most states in the U.S., you can only terminate pregnancy up until 24 weeks gestation. And in some places, you can't terminate at all. So that's its own conversation, but it's an important one because that's really all we have to offer patients. Um, when they find out to have that diagnosis and they decide they don't want to continue the pregnancy. So we, we sort of have this time frame that we're working in as well. So um, this has come up a couple times. Um, 
I think it's important, obviously, to recognize that women will have reactivated disease as well as um, infection with a new strain. That's important. I think what's um, controversial is the severity of disease. Um, it's very much less likely to happen. Um, is it less um, severe? I think it's kind of all over the board. Um, but at any rate, thankfully, it is far less likely um, to lead to what you see on the right. Um, this baby has microcephaly. Um, so in terms of reactivated and reinfection, I think the reason to even focus on it is because we know that that's probably the genesis of most of these kids with congenital infection. The true impact, I think this is a statement that um, uh, is, is very true. I think we don't really understand 100%. Um, and part of the reason we don't understand 100% is because we are strapped with just making the diagnosis during pregnancy. The only things that we have to make the diagnosis during pregnancy are the CMV IgG, CMV IgM, and then CMV avidity helping us try to figure out the timing. The problem is, is that those tests, like if you were to test most people, you're going to get IgG positive, IgM positive. You don't know when the infection happened, and then you're stuck. You're trying to guess when, when it happened and try and make, you know, some decision on telling this poor couple you should do X versus X. Um, very difficult. So the current um, prevention strategies, I've gone over this, there, there is no routine screening. And the reason there's no routine screening is because, quite frankly, right now there's not much we can do about it. And we're very concerned that the screening could lead us in the wrong direction um, in, in both ways. We'll miss people who, you know, do, who are infected, who, you know, could have a devastated baby. Um, and also there may be people who we say, well, we think, you think that something bad's going to happen, and then they end up terminating a totally normal pregnancy. It's just not a good situation. Um, in terms of, you know, what should we be doing? Well, right now the push is on education, as you just heard from our last speaker, um, trying to educate women about personal hygiene and kissing um, children less than six years old. I mean, really? Like, do you really think that works? Um, I say all these things, but I can tell you, people just look at me like, okay, Dr. Riley, and they move on to the next thing. Um, the breastfeeding situation, we know that it is in breast milk, and I think, that, you know, this, this does come up occasionally, and people will say, is it safe to breastfeed? You know, in general, people feel as though the, the benefits of breastfeeding outweigh the, the risks associated with um, there being CMV in the breast milk. Um, and if there's a recent infection, wait six months. So I write that down there because I see a lot of patients. The thing in New York is to get pregnant at 50, I have found. Um, and so when we're talking, when we're doing all these consultations for the IVF crowd, um, and they get this new CMV infection or, you know, it's the first time anyone's tested for it, that's really the issue. Um, I have to, you know, tell them, yeah, save your money and wait until you're, you know, six months before they, um, six months out before they um, do your transfer. This is the public awareness that um, our last speaker um, so nicely went through, so I'm not going to um, belabor it. Um, there is, you know, I think that the public does know about it. I think that, unfortunately, it's the public that's already the baby that's been affected. They're the people that know about it, and everybody else is kind of like, I, I never heard of that. What are you talking about? Um, and it's all, you know, quite scary. So what are the current treatment strategies? So there aren't any, um, basically. Um, we got very excited 
um, when a paper came out in the New England Journal all about um, CMD IVIG. There was so much so much excitement, and we went from that to we're going to give it to everybody who we think has it. Um, and it doesn't work. Right, so another paper came out that was a really well done um, randomized trial came out which suggested that it just doesn't work. So we don't have anything. The only thing that is going to help us prevent congenital CMV is going to be your vaccine. That's it. That's all we got. Um, and antiviral medications seems like a great idea, except that most of those when used in the feed, used in the mother um, are actually toxic to the fetus. So we're sort of left with what you can do once the baby's out, not what we can do during pregnancy. So this OB's um, perspective, so here's the thing. These are the things I worry about, and these are the things that are going to keep me up at night when you um, launch this. So is it really safe? And I think that, um, you know, you guys have convinced me that you will do all that needs to be done to tell me that it's safe. Is it efficacious? Clear that it's going to work. And is it going to be durable for all the reasons that we talked about already? You know, when are we really going to give this? And when people say childbearing, well, don't wait till 15. Forget it, because there's the 13-year-olds 13 out there. And then, you know, when you say, is it, is it going to work if you give it at 13? When I see all my IVF ladies and they're 48, I hope so. So we're going to have to think about that. Um, and then, you know, obviously, it's, it's a much-needed intervention. Look at the numbers, right? So, we, so much can be done. So with that, I will close. Well, I would like to thank our three speakers for those very nice lectures. Thank Tal and Juan and their team for all the work done over the years. And as I said, I'm really happy that for the first time since 2011, I'm talking commercial. So, as Tal uh, described to you, our, our plan for CMV is the following. Uh, we want to go into a phase three uh, looking at CMV, prevention of CMV infection uh, in healthy women. Uh, to get there, we're going to run uh, and start in the near term uh, phase two that we anticipate is going to be very rapid. Uh, 252 healthy subjects and we'll use the three-month interim data points to trigger the phase three uh, start. So how do we think about this vaccine? So we obviously think that CMV has a blockbuster commercial opportunity. Uh, as you heard today, an extremely large medical uh, uh, need, no approved vaccine on the market. If you think about the product life cycle, which we think is very important, and if you look Prevna with Pfizer and HPV with Merck, it's a very important part of really maximizing the impact we can have with our vaccine. We want to start with women of childbearing age, because I think it's a very motivated population. That's where the, the medical need is, obviously. And we want to start there. Then, like, what we've seen with HPV is we want to go down to adolescents to broaden the protection of the population. Uh, and as was alluded this morning, we have a possibility, because I think most people don't appreciate that the reservoir of CMV are humans. You know, flu is birds and pigs. Uh, you know, Zika is mosquitoes. The humans are the reservoir. So we have an opportunity to have a massive impact on public health if we're able to have a vaccine that's durable and that is uh, given to infants. And so if you think about that opportunity, is we think the addressable market is extremely large. 
And if you just take a few different assumptions that you could have on what you could do after starting from that base of healthy women to go into adolescent and to go into children, you could talk very, very large numbers. Just to give you an order of magnitude, the uh, MMR vaccines uh, sold 200 million vials in 2018, just last year. 200 million vials around the world. So this is a very large uh, opportunity for us. We think from a commercial standpoint, the big effort is going to be around OBGYN and then pediatrician. Uh, and we think there's a great opportunity, both for the phase three enrollment and for the commercial uptake, to use social media and to be able to really educate about the disease. And what we spent quite some time doing already over the summer is to think about what activities are we going to start to do from 2020 to really accelerate the uptake of a phase three, because of course the fastest you can enroll uh, those subjects in your phase three, the sooner you can file your BLA to the FDA. That's critical for time to launch. And all the activities that you do one or two years pre-launch are very important for the ramp of a product, obviously. So we're going to start uh, we're, uh, partnering with all the associations, both regional and nationals, and around the world that care deeply about CMV. We think there's great work to be done to partner uh, across the board. We want to really start educating, starting literally from today, that now the data is public. The team is going to publish the data. And we're going to start to go to uh, several, you know, OBGYN conference, medical conference around the world, so that the team is going to start spreading the data to educate about mRNA vaccines or products and the data you've seen today with much more details. We also want to, uh, on the education front, do two things, both work inside the offices of uh, the clinicians with, with pamphlets and information so people understand the disease. Uh, as you heard today, uh, we do not talk about this virus a lot uh, because there's nothing that can be done. And worrying a uh, pregnant woman or a woman who wants to be pregnant is not a very good idea uh, when you can do nothing about it. And so we think that is a great opportunity to educate about the virus. We have seen the CMV Foundation already having pamphlets trying to use Zika because Zika, given what happened in Latin America, has been really described a lot in the media. And so because of the similarities between Zika and CMV, there's a great opportunity to use the understanding of Zika to educate around CMV, so we want to do a lot around that. And of course, uh, driving the awareness of the product. Uh, if you think about pricing, and I'll come back to it in my conclusion later, just to give you an order of magnitude, Gardasil, the HPV vaccine in the U.S., has an average selling price of around $450 per treatment. So for a few doses, $450. And as uh, we've seen with vaccines, uh, vaccines are a very, very long life cycle. Uh, and we believe this is a great opportunity for us to have an impact. And if you think about what one said with the fact that we believe, given our cost structure, at this type of garden steel price point, this product could be with 90 uh, margin, uh, gross margin product. That will lead to around a 50% EBIT margin opportunity, so we think it's a really, really exciting opportunity. Uh, we care deeply about the fact that we own the global rights to this vaccine, and so we are already in the driver's seat, and we believe that the best way to have a great launch and a great impact on patients and public health is to really start working from now to educate about the virus, to educate about the data that we had from the phase one and soon sharing the phase two data, to be able to really uptake for the phase three and have a quick launch and then a big commercial update. So that's the current plan. 
We will give you more details as we continue to, to progress that plan. Uh, but we're going to be spending a lot of time with the team in the coming months and quarters to really sweat all the details to make sure we give justice to this vaccine and that we impact as many women and as many families as we can for the, for the long term. So with this, what I would like to do is to get on stage all the speakers from the CMV section of the agenda so we can take a section of Q&A before we go into uh, Little Boy. So, Tal, Juan, uh, Mark, Laura, Tali, if you don't mind joining us, please. Thank you. Tali, you want to be the master of ceremony for ending questions? If you have questions, there are a couple of mics going around. Please just raise your hand. We're going to start here just for a second. Hi, guys. Uh, Alex Ranigan from Bank of America. Just a couple of questions from me. Um, my first question is on the uh, dose collection in the phase two. Um, in the phase one, you dose up to 180 micrograms, and in the phase two, it looks like the, the top dose is 150, um, and no real indication of anything higher, like a 300 uh, dose level. So does this mean you're satisfied with the neutralizing antibody induction observed in the phase one? Uh, sort of what's the rationale for the, for the dose collection in phase two? Yeah, so uh, let me take that. Uh, I think we are very happy with the immunogenicity that we've seen so far. There's not much, if you look at the data, to distinguish the 90 from the 180. Uh, there does seem to be a little bit more uh, extra on the dose. Uh, uh, the safety profile is overall similar. But when you go into a phase three, you want to be sure that you got the right dose. And so what we've done is hone in a little bit on the, on the dose range. Uh, the 300 is still ongoing. Uh, we will be, have the opportunity to see data from it uh, just before we launch, so if we need a course correct, we'll be able to. Uh, we've enrolled everybody there. We've seen safety through the second dose. We don't see any surprises there. Uh, so if I look at this level of immunogenicity, uh, it feels like we're there. We just need to confirm that we've got the right dose with some bracketing around it to go into a pivotal time. And then my, my second question is on um, durability that you would want to be seeing in, in the phase two and probably in the phase three. So through your interactions with the FDA, um, what sort of length of follow-up do you think you'll need? Um, obviously, it sounds like um, viremia rate might be the, the registrational endpoint of, of that study. Uh, so just wondering if that follow-up would need to be, um, you know, a year or something before you submit, or if that would be sort of a um, post commercial launch technology. I don't have an answer for that yet. Uh, what we've had in our initial discussion with, it, with the agency is to understand the endpoints. I think uh, we'll go to the usual, through the usual process of an interface through discussion and aligning with them on exactly the pivotal trial design and duration and endpoints uh, before we launch it. Uh, so so I, can't, I can't comment on that. In terms of uh, I expect it, if you look at the, uh, at the history, I expect that within a year we expect to collect the rates that would be required to actually uh, demonstrate that significance. So uh, your point is valid. In terms of the durability, by the time we get there, we will have uh, even more data on, on the entirety of the study of the phase one. Over time, we'll have more data emerging on the phase two. So we'll get wider over time in terms of those numbers. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew? Uh, great. Thanks. Um, two questions for me, I guess. One, on the, on the phase one, on the, on the sentinel patients, you have here the epithelial cells, so we have an idea against the pentamer, but not GB. Can you just give us an idea of durability against GB? And then um, the second question is, can, can you be clear what was discussed at the test meeting? Was it just 
primary endpoint and, and then your ability to think about what the thing needs to look like off of that or what other factors, um, you know, I guess you mentioned durability already, but maybe yeah. be clear about what other factors. So let me answer both. Uh, first, in terms of durability, we see similar data on GB, just like you can get to the levels uh, of your positives in GB and your negatives, you can maintain those out to 12 months. We think the relevant point here is, is the pendulum, and that's why we've shown it. And uh, these are early days. Once we have the full durability for the entire study, we'll show you both against and GB. Um, but the, the Type C meeting, there's a whole bunch of questions, as uh, there usually is. Some of them have to do with our manufacturing. Some of them have to do with the study design. I think the salient one for us was an understanding on the endpoint uh, in terms of, of, of how you eventually get there. That was, uh, uh, I think, the one that was the most important for us, uh, and that's why we're sharing it. And can you, the 8,000 patients that you referenced, can you just talk about what kind of um, I mean, how you got to that number, because I think you know, yeah. one of the positions for them, I think I saw numbers that were like two to 5,000 or something, so I'm just wondering what sort of criteria you're looking at. So, so let me uh, be very explicit. I did not discuss trial numbers or phase, that level of granularity with FDA, and, and as I said, that will happen later at the end of the phase two meeting. Uh, the numbers are a function of the incidence that you see and some preliminary extrapolation. So we may be able to do it with less than 8,000. The notion here is if you find the right population where the annual incidence of cases would be 2% or so, 2 to 3%, if you can get there, then you can back calculate the math yourself and figure out what the relative power is you would need to show that. And that's how we come to that range of numbers. Uh, of course, in a trial like this, and, and I've got people who were far more experienced than me here on stage, but what you typically do is make sure as the study progresses that you're actually collecting enough cases that you're appropriately powered so that if the, if the actual incidence in your trial population is lower, you'll end up extending or enlarger it. If you're there or higher, great, you've, you've got there. So that's typically how, how you think about the numbers. Okay. Thanks. Ted? Yeah. Great. Thank you very much for the update. Um, just to kind of flush that out a little bit more, because that sounds like an efficacy number, do you envision that you would require a larger safety database? So would it be a single phase uh, three study or do you think even in that kind of 8,000 range and with the uh, prior subjects, does that you would have sufficient safety data? Thank you. So I, uh, my assessment at this time is I think that number should suffice in terms of a safety database as well. I also think that that number may end up including seropositives, not just seronegatives. So to the point of the power calculation, you may be able to get there with fewer subjects on purely seronegatives. You're going to need to show uh, overall uh, the safety profile for seropositives as well because we expect ultimately to get an indication that doesn't distinguish between the two. So that's how I, how I come up with the numbers. One is on, uh, on this call that we were talking about, uh, the background rate. Uh, we've got a lot of data presented in the United States. Your, your phase three will be worldwide. Um, you know, is there a potential that if you're looking at XUS, sort of, you know, the, the background rate of, of CMV infection, that you could see some differences there that would also affect your powering? And how would you sort of approach that? Uh, and I just got a quick follow-up yeah, so uh, our, our work is only beginning in terms of feasibility. We are looking globally. We're looking primarily at uh, the, the major places in Europe uh, and similar geographies, similar in terms of incidence rates, so that the phase three, when we launch it, is fairly homogeneous in terms of expectations. 
Um, and then just the follow-up was that I believe that vaccines, you know, the uptake is usually also driven by a lot of organizations like APIP, et cetera. It's not just, uh, you know, legislation, which I think helps a lot. What are some of the things that you're thinking of doing going forward so that by the time, assuming the vaccine, the phase two trials are successful um, and it gets approved, that, uh, that, you know, and then it just becomes, I guess, like algorithmic driven right in terms of uptake. Thank you. Um, so uh, my colleagues here can comment about the role of ACIP and what we need to demonstrate. We've had, uh, you know, initial discussions with the folks down at the CDC. Obviously, in order to get a recommendation, you need to show your overall uh, benefit, risk, and value proposition, which I think in this disease is going to be quite clear. I don't know if any of you want to comment on sort of from an ACIP perspective what that would look like. Well, as a former member of the ACIP, I would say that, um, you know, that's exactly what we're concerned about, right? Is it going to work? Um, obviously, the cost effectiveness is huge now, um, although the absolute vote in, within the ACIP, we're not supposed to take into consideration cost effectiveness, but it's always presented um, in the work group, and it does, I, I think it does influence um, in many ways what we do. And I think the, the deal with this vaccine is going to be, um, you know, CMV is the most, in general, CMV is the most common you know, um, congenital virus and so that we see in the U.S. and probably globally. And so um, I think that there's, it's going to be an easy um, argument, to be quite frank, um, assuming it works and it's safe. Um, and then you bring up another um, a point that I think is really important. I think the timing for the, for the um, vaccine is um, critical and a good one in the sense that um, finally we're at a place where I think um, – you know, everyone believes that vaccines during pregnancy should be done for prevention, and so it, it's appropriate to test during pregnancy. There used to be this, you can't touch a pregnant woman because of the, you know, potential effects on the baby. Um, and so I think with the advent of, you know, H1N1 and all these other, um, you know, vaccine-preventable diseases, you know, sort of um, uh, wreaking havoc in the population, people are coming around. Um, to the necessity. Thank you. I'm going to uh, take Tim and then two more questions and, and we'll have to move on. Yeah, first a comment and then a question or maybe a follow-up. Um, this is a real moonshot vaccine because not only does it have six RNAs in it, but it, you know, five of them encode a pentamer. So if any one of those RNAs don't work, the pentamer isn't made, right? So it's, it's really a complex vaccine. Uh, now, my question is about cell-mediated immunity. I mean, I know it's, it's your right to focus on the antibody-mediated responses because, you know, they can block virus infection, right? They're neutralizing. It's great. I mean, it's a great endpoint. But, you know, the great thing about our vaccines is that, you know, cells take them up, and they make the proteins intracellularly, and then those, those proteins can be made into peptides, and they get presented on the cell surface through MHC, so they can do cell-mediated immunity, which subunit vaccines can't do, or they have a very hard time doing it at all. Um, and so I'm very curious if you're getting any cell-mediated immunity, because, you know, um, there are cells in the body that are producing the CMV virus. And if those cells can be killed by cell-mediated immunity, the, the, vi the virus titer is going to go way down, and you also may not help that, not only help that person, but prevent transmission to other people. 
So, um, and the last speaker uh, uh, before Stefan spoke about um, uh, shedding of arts. So, um, so obviously you folks can measure shedding, and I wonder, um, you know, if we can measure either the cell-mediated immunity or the shedding uh, in, in the new trials or future trials. So let me uh, try to answer it. Uh, uh, we, we're, we're looking at shedding, and, and I'll, I'll ask Dr. Riley to answer that question because it's of keen interest to me, especially in the zero positive. You know, I so I'm, I'm uh, for full disclosure here. I'm, I'm actually not a vaccinologist. I'm a cancer doc, and I've spent most of my career being a complete T-cell shiver, uh and, and 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 believing that's what's important. I think when I step back, look at Shingrix, which is a one subunit vaccine that's had 97% efficacy against preventing reactivation of a persistent infection. I think that teaches us that cells uh, may be important, but the, the ability of subunits just to generate antibodies may actually have a profound and deep effect. Uh, so I, I think in the context of, of this uh, virus, it's unclear to me uh, what the importance of the T-cell would be. That being said, by virtue of mRNA's ability to make proteins from within the cell, uh, while I haven't shown you any data and we're working on measuring it, I'm pretty sure that we're able to elicit T-cells because everywhere else that we've looked, we've seen the ability to generate T-cells. I just don't know how important they are as a correlative protection or how to get there from a measurement as I am in terms of my confidence in, in the antibody levels. Um, so I'll just tell you from a preclinical non-human primate um, standpoint, um, I, one of the things that I took on in the field is, is trying to develop a non-human primate model of congenital transmission where we could test vaccines. And um, But the first, we didn't know if the viruses in primates that are um, similar to the human CMV virus actually cross the placenta. And so we took about a, a strategy of immune suppressing the moms and then infecting them with CMV to see if we could see it. And when we depleted their CD4 T cells of these pregnant dams. We infected them with CMV. All of the fetuses got infected, and all of five uh, or um, 80 percent of the fetuses were aborted. So we saw much more severe infection of the fetus and 100 percent transmission in the setting of absent CD4 T cells. We don't know if that. Transmission when you didn't deplete the cells. So small numbers in our uh, so far, but it was um, at about half. So, um, so 100% versus, you know, less than half, kind of similar to the human situa situation. So, uh, but we don't know if that, those T cells are needed for high, good antibody responses or those T cells needed to kill infected cells. Uh, mRNA vaccines, though, traditionally, what data's out there, induce great CD4 T cell responses. So I expect to see that. So CD8 T cell depletion would be very interesting. Oh, we're going to do that in a new grant that we just received from the NIH. <laughs> Good. Uh, and question over here? Yeah, Salve. Um, what plans do you have to introduce a viral challenge to confirm the fact that you're providing um, protection here? And then maybe a second question on whether you anticipate that the seronegative patients would need a booster at some point to remain above the seropositive level. Yeah. Um, I don't think a challenge study is feasible here, certainly not a human challenge. I think uh, to the degree that animal models are available, we've already done them and shown that it works. Uh, so the next step is really the, the human study. Um, for how, how much higher above the uh, levels you need, I think that's an unknown. And it's 
one of the things we were, we're going to have to figure out over time as we measure both, both the durability of our vaccine and its efficacy in a real pivotal trial. Uh, I think short of that, it's going to be really hard to answer that question. And Bob, you had a question. Oh, I'm sorry, I just saw Bob raise his hand from before. So. Two quick things. Very nice, awesome presentation. Two quick things. One, just I, I'm sure this is true, but these epitopes, these proteins are in variants across strains. Are variable strains. Are strains or geographic variability of the antigens you're doing? Mm -hmm. They're not. Um, there's several different genotypes that make up each of the glycoproteins. Um, so that's one thing that we've been studying in the lab and, and we'll be interested to see um, how it plays out here. Um, but I think one thing that can be done in the clinical trials is sequencing the virus that is actually acquired by vaccines to see is there um, a, a shift in the vaccinees, what, what viruses they're acquiring versus placebo recipients to see if uh, the vaccinees, if we see protection, or even if you don't see protection, were they um, protected against the strain that the vaccine was made against, or were they protected against all strains? So is there already evidence in your model that, that only certain strains are protected against? Um, very little. It's still an unknown question, I would say. We're, we are looking at it in the old vaccine trials. And any sense of the fraction population of the, of the prevalence that would be covered by the existing sequences? Which is it against? Which strain against? The, the prevalence, the, the U.S. prevalence of CMZ, what fraction of it? So I believe this is the one that's the most prevalent, but I'll get back to you on the exact. Okay. And then one small question. The press release mentioned one grade four elevated PTT, Correct. which I just would wonder if you could say anything more about Yes. Um, it was uh, a subject that had a, a, a somewhat abnormal baseline. It was temporarily, temporarily associated with uh, getting the first or second dose. Uh, we got the subject back for follow-up by the time we found them, and 10 days later they came back. It was back to normal, and there were no clinical sequelae of that whatsoever. So uh, technically, uh, it reached a level of grade four. What do you make of that? I mean, was that uh, a lab error, I don't, or was that what you think is a real finding? I don't think it is a significant finding. It's not something we've seen anywhere else. I think it's in, you know, from my perspective, I don't think it's a clinical significance. So, so can I be just watching this process wise? We have another clinician at the end. I just want to be careful. We have a very heavy agenda, and we're already a bit behind schedule. So just maybe uh, 10 minutes. Break. There's coffee just outside. Fresh from outside, so we will start with him in our Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Yep. Just testing, testing. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Testing, still testing. Can you hear me? Still talking? Testing, testing. Keep going. Okay.
Yep. Just testing, testing. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Testing, still testing. Can you hear me? Still talking? Testing, testing. Keep going. Okay.